When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Investment Ideas. I'm the host today, Ed Harrison, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking again to Gary Schilling, who's the president of A. Gary Schilling. Gary, welcome to Investment Ideas. Glad to be with you again, Ed. Thanks. Welcome back, I should say. And, you know, I, um, for those of you uh, uh, who are watching who don't know uh, your work, why don't you give us a brief explanation of, of the various things that you do at your company? Well, we're economic consultants and also registered investment advisors. We, we eat our own cooking. We invest according to our views. Uh, we start with the aggregate uh, economy. We look at the political, the economic, the financial spheres, develop a forecast, and then see what investment themes drop out of that. And they can involve any number of vehicles, stocks, long or short, bonds, currencies, commodities, whatever seems to be the best way of, of, of making money. And I've always been guided by uh, two very fundamental principles. One is that history is relevant, that human nature doesn't change very rapidly, if at all. So, so people react to similar circumstances in similar ways. Now, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. But I'm always looking for areas where, where there are similarities. And that stood us in good uh, good stead in, in 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 the past, certainly with the with a big housing boom and collapse uh, with with a great recession. Uh, the sec the, the second principle is 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 uh, the, the conviction that you don't add value in this business by rehashing the consensus. That's already fully discounted. It's available in the media, the press. Where where you add value is by finding things that are first of all likely to happen. They can't be trivial. Secondly that are, are uh, not yet within the purview of the consensus, and third, that are likely to be, <laughs> that they're going to work out. And when we find those kind of things, we really jump on them with all fours. So that's the approach where we're macro, uh, we're, we're, we're interested in the, in the big picture, interest rates, uh, consumer spending, uh, capital spending, and obviously now the effects of the of the virus and so on. We're not stock pickers. We're not. We're not uh, on that level. Uh, we're looking at the more aggregate uh, measures of the economy and financial markets. You know that is a really exciting uh, introduction because there's so many places we can go with that. You know, actually, I was thinking about the fact that I was I'm looking over at my bookshelf. Uh, I don't see it immediately, but I have one of your books with regard to. Um, uh, the uh, deflation, I think it was, uh, something re regarding uh, the age of deflation. And so when you talk about uh, non-consensus views, uh, number one, that was a non-consensus view. Number two, I know that potentially 
that view could be changing. And, and number three, we're in the middle of what I would consider a developing mania, potentially. And so my question to you is, uh, what is the consensus view getting wrong right now about what's happening in the economy and in the markets? Well, the, the consensus view is that the economy is going to open very rapidly and that inflation is going to come roaring back. Interest rates are going through the roof. Now, I think that that is way overdone. Uh, and by the way, and I've heard that since in, in the early 1980s, uh, when the yield on the 30-year Treasury was 14.6%. It's now it's now 2%. And you've had an unbelievable rally in Treasuries, because, of course, as the interest rates go down, the prices go up. Uh, I said back then we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. Why? Because I was predicting the unwinding of inflation. And I still think we're in that kind of environment. We basically have a situation where supply exceeds demand in the world. And when you get more supply than demand, what happens to prices? They go down. Now, this is not accounting for all the, the squiggles. And we've had some increase in commodity prices lately with bottlenecks uh, and supply chain disruptions. But the fundamental facts are that Asia, China, and other countries are tremendous producers, but they're very weak consumers. They produce a lot more than they consume. So they have this excess saving, the savings glut, it's called. And that means on a global basis that you have more supply than demand. And that, that, is, that is what's holding down wages in this country. That's what's holding down prices. And, and sure, you look at things like a P&G, they're just announcing price increases coming up in September because of, of commodity price increases and, and uh, Kimberly Clark and other, other commodity users. But I think if you look at it in any kind of a perspective, uh, you see that, that we are in a, in, a, in a low inflation, if not deflationary era. And so, uh, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty uh, uh, as to why, what sort of asset allocation are you recommending to your clients? What are the key tenants and over what time frame? Well, we're, we're, we're very uh, cautious right now. I, I think you have, a, uh, you have a very difficult situation. Uh, the money that's been pumped out by the Fed and by all the uh, fiscal stimulus, it has not really gone into spending. It's going into, into savings. Uh, if you look at what's, what people have done with the uh, money they got last March and then December and again in, in, uh, in this March, uh, they've saved they've saved about three quarters of it and spent very little. And of course, all the money the Fed has, has pumped out. So where's it's going? It's going into asset inflation and a lot of it into into stocks. It's pushed stocks to unbelievable levels. It's really responsible for things like Dogecoin and and uh, and uh, uh, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, and 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 all these speculations. And I think it's it's pushed stocks uh, to to unbelievable heights in relation to earnings or relation to anything else. Uh, and the result, I think I think stocks are very are very overpriced. Now that doesn't mean that we I want to be short stocks right now because with speculations, you never know how far they're going to go. They leave the realm of they leave the realm of, of any kind of fundamentals. They're off in the wild blue yonder. Uh, but right now, we, we are basically concentrating on relatively small positions in the dollar, 
long treasury bonds, they've been doing, they've been doing uh, better lately. We're, we're short a few commodities like copper, uh, but we basically have very, uh, very small positions and we want, we have toeholds, but if things start to un- unfold as, as we think, and we get a big sell off in equities and it takes a lot of these speculations with them, I think we'll again have an opportunity to make some serious money. Yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Dogecoin in there as you said that because uh, you know we have internal meetings at uh, uh, the editorial group in Real Vision, and ultimately it's dominated by this whole thinking. The zeitgeist of today is around uh, speculative assets, and Dogecoin to me is sort of the quintessential speculative asset in that it's it was conceived as a joke. Yes, the algorithm is is basically the same as Bitcoin, but really, if people are speculating in what is a joke, what does that say about where we are and where we're going? Well, it it basically tells you that there's that there's too much money floating around and people don't know what else to do with it. Uh, you know, they're not spending it on yachts and furs and well, they're spending it on single family housing, obviously in the suburbs and rural areas. They want to get out of the cities. But it is a it is a speculative outlet with with too much money, and it's a curious situation because the Federal Reserve uh, they can't be oblivious to what they're what they're doing, but they are so concerned about employment and getting everybody back to work, uh, even though even though you've had a lot of people, about a quarter of the people who are unemployed today uh, have dropped out of the labor force. Matter of fact, the unemployment rate. It's registered at 6%, but it would be 8.8% if you had the same labor force participation rate that you had in January of 2020. In other words, people are being paid to stay home uh, with the with the checks from the government, the unemployment insurance, the extra unemployment insurance, and all the other government benefits. So uh, you, have a, you, have a, you have a situation here where, uh, where there's a, a lot of incentives for people uh, not to work and and people aren't really spending they're saving the money and and it's going into these rank speculations because of that i think i'm i'm thinking about uh the fed's dual mandate because when you look at what the fed does they talk about inflation and they talk about employment as their dual mandate as given by Congress. But right from 1913, the Fed was told that they need to secure the monetary system. So irrespective of the congressionally mandated role that the Fed is supposed to play, they do have a financial stability uh, role to play in the economy. And to the degree that this is going on, the question then becomes, how do they address that? Because it's sort of, you could call it a stealth third mandate that's always there. But if we see um, rampant speculation like you're talking about, is it possible that already uh, in the summer when we have a full reopening of the U.S. economy that we're going to see a tapering of asset purchases and a renormalization of, of rate policy by the Fed? Well, we very well we we very well may add uh, certainly there, there's there's got to be some some end to this. Although uh, I'm sure the Democrats will be pushing for a lot more stimulus going into the 2022 election, uh, as you mentioned earlier. But it's it's uh, it is a situation now where uh, I think the Fed has lost complete perspective on this idea of what all this money is doing 
to the economy, and their their only concern has been is has been unemployment, and that's the same of of Yellen as Treasury Secretary. But you know, it it's uh, when you say when is this going to when is this going to end? You remember they used to talk about the the Greenspan put. In other words, the idea that that uh, there was a put to the Fed when Alan Greenspan was chairman, and and then it was a Bernanke put, and then the Yellen put, and now it's the Powell put. In other words, these guys just seem like they're. I know that they're very honest uh, government uh, public servants, but you'd almost think that these guys have got a vested interest in pushing up stocks and fostering speculation. But you know, at some point, uh, you would think that they've got to exercise more caution. But I'm not sure we're going to see rapid growth uh, to the point that they make that decision this summer. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you've seen in these successive rounds of stimulus, people are actually spending less and less of that, according to the Fed's surveys. They, they survey people on a monthly basis and say, how much of the stimulus last March did you spend? Uh, and that was a 27%. And then in December, it's 26%. And this March is 25%. So people are spending, and they're saving the rest. They're using it to rebuild assets and pay down debt. So uh, I don't. I think the idea that there's going to be a very strong economy, uh, so strong that the Fed is going to shift gears uh, eventually, but I I would doubt it happened by this summer. Yeah, very interesting. You know, the the non-consensus view that you're talking about, and when you talk about the Democrats there, to me sounds like where you're saying, okay, we're going to have the full reopening in the U.S. just as we are in the U.K. Uh, perhaps this summer and then elsewhere uh, slightly delayed. But when that full reopening happens, at least from the U.S. perspective, we're not going to have a robust, uh, as robust a uptick as we want. And the Democrats thinking forward to 2022 in the midterms are therefore going to be forced to re-up on the stimulus, of this, the same kind of, uh, of stimulus that we've seen uh, since the pandemic began. Yeah, well, and of course, that could set off a battle between uh, the Fed and and the Democrats controlling the White House and Congress at some point. But again, uh, I think we'd have to see a lot more growth before the Fed would shift gears. And in the meanwhile, yeah, we, we, could, we could get more stimulus. And where would it go? Go into speculative assets where it's gone so far. In other words, you know, there's there's no... Uh, until somebody blows the whistle, and that normally is the Fed, there's no real end to this speculative climate. It, it just gets more and more extreme. It, it's it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the socks the puppet kind of thing we saw back when the dot com era in, in the late 1990s. You know, I mean, absolutely no logic to the thing, but everybody's having a wonderful time as long as it lasts. Well, you know, interestingly, David Rosenberg, who we both know, uh, I was reading his piece today for, for the morning, and he made the uh, suggestion that when we look back to the dot-com bubble, really, it wasn't the Fed's tightening that was responsible for the collapse. It collapsed of its own weight, meaning that we reached a point of peak speculation uh, that coincided with a, uh, a number of companies not being able to make uh, very prodigious earnings estimates. Yeah, I, I think that's largely true. The Fed did tar- start to tighten a tiny bit, but I think it largely did collapse of its own weight. And that certainly was true 
uh, that was truly a, a subprime mortgage uh, bonanza. I mean, that that really collapsed when a couple of the mortgage companies, New Century was one of them. Uh, they basically uh, reported lousy earnings at the end of, of 2007. And and uh, if you look at measures like uh, of these tranches, one ABX, triple B minus, and some people might not know what that is, but it basically was a measure of what these securitizations of these subprime mortgages were worth. And that went from 90 to 10 in a matter of a couple of months. Uh, and that, again, that collapse of its of its own weight. That was not, uh, as a matter of fact, at that time, the Fed and the White House, they all said everybody in the country ought to own their own house. And they were, they were, they were really egging the whole thing on. So, yeah, I, and maybe that's what we're going to have this time. It, you know, could end with a uh, simply a, 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 a it drops of its own weight. Let's go back since you're you're doing that. I think uh, before we came on, I was talking to you about. Uh, I can probably go back to uh, the '90s. I can I can certainly go back to my my first real experience in the market was the '87 crash. Uh, but I don't I don't have any real historical in the moment uh, knowledge of the periods before that. But we have a number of different. Uh, manias or uh, speculative bubbles. You mentioned a few of them, the internet bubble, the housing bubble. Uh, but what about you know the nifty 50 and that period of time? What are your takeaways to uh, this whole Mark Twain thing about that we can look back in history and it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, interesting you talk about the Nifty 50. I was the chief economist of Merrill Lynch at the time, and I looked around and, and I, I, I wrote this up and I said, you know, when we get to the point that the only thing that people want are gimmick cameras, Polaroid, motor homes, Winnebago, and amusement parks, Disney. And, and that's all they want. That's the, that, that's the outward flourishes. That's not the guts of the economy. And I, and I, I wrote it up and I said, you know, this, this, is, this means that people are rejecting the basic economy, that they're saying there's something wrong, that we're into speculation. And that, and that's and that's where we were then, and I think there are many similarities this time. You know, I, how could this end? One, one possibility is that simply we wake we wake up tomorrow and we find some major financial institution has has bit the dust. We had this uh, we had this uh, recently uh, uh, this uh, was Eros, uh, uh, you know, which which was uh, I, don't, I don't know whether that's just overpriced stocks or fraud or what, but. You know, we, we can have something like that on a larger scale that that just touches off the uh, touches off the the collapse. Um, that's happening. You go back to the tulip mania in Holland in the 1600s, the South Sea bubble in England in the 1700s, and I've I've written up all this. I study this extensively, and and they all just get to the point where somehow uh, some some what looks like a tiny trigger and wham they all collapse so i think that's and that's why in in the portfolios we manage we're being very cautious we are really in a risk off strategy and we're prepared to step that up um, if things start to go in our favor but 
I'm not making any firm prediction as to when this thing is going to collapse. The thing about speculations is they outrun any logic. And and uh, that's probably going to be true of this one. But at some point, boy, there's going to be a lot of blood on the floor. You know, uh, in the interim, the, there's the real economy. We're going to let's talk about the U.S. and then we'll, we can move globally because that's the basis of earnings is the real economy. You talked about savings, but the event that's happening that's most salient over the medium term is the full reopening. The way I would describe it uh, in the US and the UK in particular is we're getting to the point where everyone who wants a vaccine will have had one by say midsummer. And so we can reopen in a, uh, a full way. A friend of mine who works at Deutsche Bank in London, he told me today was the first day that he was in the office for five months and it was a ghost town, but this is what's what's coming for for more and more workers. What happens in that period? What what's the new normal potentially going to look like? Well, first of all, the Dallas uh, the Dallas Fed has uh, some interesting uh, charts and information that suggests that the economy is now largely reopened. Uh, I think they're they're they're. I'm in New York, uh, you're here in Bethesda. I mean, there, there are certain areas where we may not be aware of that uh, locally, but largely it is it is reopened. Uh, secondly, when it reopens, it's going to be different. Uh, we're going to see more spending on services. That's what's been cut back. People will not be able to go out to restaurants and hotels, travel, uh, what have you. They've been home spending on goods. Uh, they're on, on Facebook, they've been ordering on Amazon and so on. So you're going to see somewhat of a, of a reversal there in spending. Uh, I think there are going to be some permanent changes in, in uh, uh, people's work habits. Uh, a lot of people are discovering that uh, going to the office and, and commuting an hour and a half each way is not exactly fun. I got to tell you myself, uh, I moved our shop from uh, lower Manhattan out to suburban New Jersey and so it's a mere coincidence, it's 1.4 miles from a residence. I did that in 1990. I just said, hey, <laughs> and an uh, interesting anecdote on that. I used to, that was back in the days when we all wore suits, and I would buy two or three new suits a year, not because they were going out of style, because I wore them out. Well, once we moved out here, I didn't have that problem anymore. And you think if that's what computing does to the suit, what's it doing to the guy inside the suit? But I think we're going to see um, we're going to see uh, permanent restrictions on on office on office occupancy. Uh, people are going to be working from home part time. Uh, and of course, what's what's happened is that that the pandemic has made us aware of and really forced us to use the technology that's there. I mean, you and I might have well have been having this interview face-to-face if we didn't have the pandemic. We've done that in the past. Well, now, now we're doing it here, and you know, I think we're probably getting along just as well as if we were face-to-face. <laughs> so I, I, th- I think we're gonna see a, a lot of changes there. Not, 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 the, not that there won't be some reversion back to uh, where we were, but, but only partially. The big question then becomes, uh, how do you play that and how much of that's priced in? Because I'm thinking in particular when you say that about the Netflix problem, because Netflix had their earnings, their earnings said, you know, no one's watching Netflix relative to your expectations because we're reopening. And by the way, uh, the numbers that we're going to give you for next quarter are even worse. 
And there's a big market reaction to that. So there's a hump that we're getting over where we're trying to figure out how much of this is all priced in and what the new normal is after the fact. And you're saying uh, we're actually cautious. How do you how do you be cautious in a way to be able to ride through this uh, turbulent period where we're figuring out what the new normal is, but still have your powder dry to take advantage of the situation, you know, three months, six months hence? I think you just have to have relatively small positions. You take positions in where you think the fundamentals are going to go. But you don't bet the ranch until things start to move in your favor. That's my that's my approach. I want a small position, and then I want the markets to tell me that it's working. Now you can get a lot of false starts. You know, there's no guarantee on this. But but that, that's that's my approach. And, and if you look at you look at example real estate, um, uh, our monthly newsletter Insight. I bet last October we did a major I- issue on on real estate and noted that. You no longer had everything in real estate moving together. It used to be, it used to be uh, that when the economy was strong, housing was strong, office occupancy was strong, people were going to malls, etc. A whole spectrum. Well, then, then it really changed because people were home. They were ordering from home on Amazon. Uh, malls, uh, a lot of the second and third tier malls basically went bust. They're trying to figure out what to do with the space. Uh, uh, hotels are in big trouble. Office buildings, uh, you know, in in tremendous. Tr- so you had a you had a real you had a real real change on that. And uh, you know, I I think that I think that uh, a lot of that is I think a lot of that is going to is going to persist. Single family housing, of course, has been red hot, particularly people moving out of cramped, expensive city apartments into the suburbs and and rural areas. There's been a huge increase in prices. In that area, uh, builders builders have not really gone back to the kind of whole hog development that they did going into the at the subprime mortgage collapse. They, they've been a lot more cautious. So you don't have a huge overhang of, of supply that you had then. You don't have the likely housing collapse, but you know you've you've had a you've had a big run in that area. So I kind of think that that may be getting to the that may getting the end where the, the bloom is off the rose. I I don't think it's going to collapse like it did with the subprime uh, uh, debacle, but but I I do think that that's probably getting about to the end. And you know, uh, insight. How do we get uh, just for viewers if they want to read your views? Uh, how do you get they get access to that? Well, you can go to our website www.agaryshilling.com, and that's all one word: a g a r y s h i l l i n g dot com. Uh, and uh, we'll, if, if somebody's interested, we'll send them a, a, a complimentary uh, monthly copy. See what it's like. Excellent. Now, when you are writing uh, um, on your site about housing and uh, commercial real estate. What are your views about how this plays out and how long it plays out? I think that some of it is going to stick. That that people are uh, people are going to be more favoring uh, single family houses in the suburbs. Uh, you also have a lot of the millennials who are now in the home buying age brackets, although that's somewhat tempered by very low birth rates. There's a strong correlation between having young children and single family housing, obviously. And and you know birth rates have virtually collapsed. They've been declining for years, but the pandemic pushed them down further. So there isn't there isn't that strong 
uh, motivation. But I think people have decided that they they want to be out of the city. So so I think that the single family housing is going to remain uh, relatively strong. But I rather suspect investment wise that it's gotten ahead of itself. Right. Now, if you look at if you look at uh, things like malls and office buildings uh, there, you can argue that they've been oversold, that things have really uh, have really uh, collapsed to the point that there's uh, that that they are there are bar they are bargains that they're they're worth looking at investment wise. Yeah. Now we haven't talked about Europe. We haven't talked about Asia, uh, Latin America. When you look globally and you think going back to your framework about non-consensus views, what are the things that you're thinking about in terms of the economy that people should be watching that is not consensus? Well, I don't know that I have a lot of non-consensus views about about Europe. Um, Europe is recovering slowly from the pandemic, but Europe has been subdued for a long, long time. Uh, there hasn't been any great spark of, of growth there. You've had Brexit with the uh, with the uh, uncertainty with with the separation of the UK from the economic uh, from the European Union. Um, as far as Asia is concerned, um, I think there's been an overemphasis on 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 China in particular, a great fascination with China. China is the second largest economy in the world, but that's only because they got a lot of people. Uh, they got one point you know one point three trillion people. We got three hundred fifty million. I mean, they they are a, a developing country. Their GDP per capita is one eighth of ours. Uh, and and the thing is that China is trying to convert from being led by exports and infrastructure. You know, when they when they haven't got anything else to do with people, they build more roads and, and office buildings and have ghost cities and so on. They're trying to spur economic growth domestically, uh, trying to get incomes up. And that means that their wages are rising. They no longer are the cheap manufacturing area. A lot of that low-end manufacturing has moved, moved to Vietnam, Bangladesh, other cheap areas. So China is in a transition period. Uh, they swing a lot of weight uh, politically and militarily with their Belt and Road policy and so on. But in terms of an economy, um, I think that the fascination with China is is way overdone. Interesting, you know, and uh, w- also interesting is your mention of the political and military side of things, because to the degree that uh, you are caught in the middle. There's a temptation to, especially if you have military and geopolitical potential, to uh, to lean on that. And I'm not thinking just about the Chinese. I'm thinking about the Russians as well, who are busy uh, building up military fortifications on the border with Ukraine. Do you think that any of these situations regarding China, regarding Russia, uh, have economic implications? Uh, There's a potential that, you know, there's an event there that uh, roils the global economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, well, uh, uh, Shakespeare, and I think it was Henry IV, part two, 
uh, had a great line that said, busy, giddy minds with foreign quarrels. In other words, if things aren't going well at home, stir up the monkeys with some kind of a foreign quarrel, start a war someplace else to detract from it. And I'm not sure that isn't what's what's going on with China, that they are uh, in some sense detracting from their domestic problems and lack of growth potential domestically by getting involved in this sort of land grab in the South China Sea and their belt and road policy. They're spending a lot of money. They're getting very little results. But it, it is, you know, it is risky uh, militarily. And Russia, the same thing. You know, it's, it's uh, Putin is let's go after U- Ukraine. You know, let's let's take on somebody really tough, uh, like like uh, uh, like, uh, you know, who do we take on? Um, no, we invaded some Caribbean island a couple of decades <laughs> ago. I've forgotten which one. Grenada, was, was it? What? Was it Grenada? Grenada, that? yeah, that was it. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a hard-fought battle with the Grenada with the Grenadian um, military forces. You know, I mean, you put this stuff in perspective, and it's a joke, and it's a joke, but it's a serious joke because people's lives are at at stake and things are disrupted, and and I, so I think you probably are going to uh, looking at a world where you're going to see more of this kind of of conflict. Let's hope it doesn't get out of hand, but it isn't going to go away. Yeah. So Gary, if I had, if we had to wrap uh, with um, things that we've missed, we talked about your non-consensus view, you know, uh, keeping your powder dry. Um, what have we missed? What should people's eyes be on and what time frame are you thinking about? Well, I, I think it's, I think it's a time when, when people um, are, are doing what makes sense. They're, uh, they're being cautious with all the stimulus money. They're rebuilding assets. They're paying down debts. Uh, debts are still very high relative to norm. Uh, if you look at total uh, consumer debt, and that's mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, uh, student loans, you look at all that in relation to after-tax income, that used to run 60%. In the early 80s, it ran up to 135% in 2007. And now it's back to it's that now it's back to 85 percent, but it's still a long way from 60 percent. And I think that people are doing what they should. They're 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 saving. Uh, you know, Fed surveys show that that 16 uh, percent of millennials don't have 400 bucks in cash for emergencies. Uh, and, and, and I think that we had a wake up call with the pandemic and people are doing that. So I think it is a time uh, to save money, uh, to be cautious. And, and certainly investment wise uh, to uh, investment wise to, to avoid these these speculation it's very hard when everybody is making money and you feel oh I'm missing it I'm, I'm you know here's this garage mechanic who's no longer fixing cars because he's making so much money in in GameStop I mean you know I'm, I'm a stupid idiot uh, why aren't I involved well uh, you know there are times there are times when you really have to just Lock up your courage and say, no, I don't want to be involved. Well said. Uh, and but, uh, one one last question. I know that was supposed to be the last one. Long bond. Uh, what's, uh, what do you say about, where, what should we do about that? Well, I've been a fan. As you know, Ed, I've been a fan on that for 40 years. And, and over that time, the long bond on a total return basis has outperformed the S&P by six and a half times, six and a half times. 
Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, treasury's there for little old ladies and orphans. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> it certainly created financial independence for the Schelling family a long time ago. Uh, I think that I think that yields are, are probably still going lower. Uh, you did have a, a, a little bit of a, of a spike uh, uh, earlier this year, uh, late la- from late last year. Now uh, we've seen uh, a, a retreat in rates. Um, I think rates are still going lower. I think we, we could get below 2% on the long bond. And, and the thing is that, you know, if you have a one percentage point decline in a 30-year treasury, you make about 20% on your money. Uh, it's called convexity, but it just means as the lower the rates, the bigger bang per buck. And if you have a, a, a zero coupon bond, one that, that doesn't pay interest, but you make it up through appreciation, you get about a 30% return. And to me, on any reasonable time frame, I think that's still a very good bet. Now, I'm biased. As you know, I've been a bull on bonds since 1981, when, as I mentioned earlier, I said we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime, and I think that's still running. Well, yeah, that's the important thing. Um, let's uh, let's do this again, update it. But uh, Gary, let's do it uh, in New York if we can. <laughs> okay, okay, that's a promise. We'll both get to New York. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Great, right. great to talk to you as usual. Same here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.